You know, a movie came out not long ago. Uh, the title is called Hidden Figures. Um, it tells the story of, of, a, of a group of African-American female mathematicians. They, they worked at NASA back in the early 1960s. And despite working with very little recognition and despite working under a, a, in, in a discriminatory environment, they played a significant role in solving some of the most complex computations uh, around in that day, and they helped launch the first successful um, U.S. space flight. Hidden figures. Uh, they're all around us, and they come in all different settings. They're people who, without having to take center stage, are doing heroic, significant things. Uh, we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark for some time, and, and as we've been making our way through it, you may have noticed that some of the most extraordinary characters get introduced and presented as hidden figures. Uh, we often find that it's those who are making the biggest impact are doing so off-center stage, under the radar screen. A couple of examples um, just to review and kind of just catch up a little bit. Uh, there is this poor widow in the temple. We aren't told her name, uh, but she dropped her last penny into the offering box. And that act would have gone unnoticed except for one thing. Jesus wouldn't let it. He points it out. He calls his disciples over and he tells them, this lady has done something extraordinary. She's done what no one else has done here this day. And he explains to them that while everyone else gave a slice, a small portion of the much, the abundance that they had, this hidden figure, he tells them, she gave everything that she had, the last penny. Another example of a hidden figure made her appearance back in Mark chapter 7. Um, it's a challenging one to look through. We're just going to survey it quickly. But uh, there's an unnamed Syrophoenician woman. She sought out an audience with Jesus because her daughter was in desperate need. She needed help. And after she goes to Jesus, she asks him for help. Jesus responds in a very peculiar way. Instead of giving her a direct yes or no answer, he shares a short story with her. He tells her this. He says, the children are to be fed first. The implication being that it's not, it's, it's, it's the Jewish people who, who are his focus at this time. And then he goes on and says this, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right, now, it's a story he's telling, but let me be honest. If I were there, I think I would be tempted to turn this into a little bit of a coachable moment. Like, I might say, Jesus, I get what you're trying to say, but do you think you can just say it a little differently? Can you soften it up a little bit? Um, but that doesn't matter. The real question here is, is how is she going to respond? Right? In, instead of walking away dejected and offended, she actually enters into this story that Jesus started. You see, she understands that the story isn't over yet. Jesus has started it, but he hasn't finished it yet. And so she goes along with the storyline he started, but then she keeps telling it. She adds to it. She says this, even the dogs under the table get to eat the crumbs. So what she's saying is, fine, let, 
let the children eat first. But then what? See, she figured it doesn't matter if she gets the first serving. It doesn't even matter if she's the last one served. It doesn't even matter if she just gets the leftover crumbs. Here's what she knows for sure. She's convinced that there is still something that Jesus has for her that's hers to grab hold of. And she finds out that she's right. She gets what she asks for. And so here's the crazy thing is, what starts out sounding like, like an insult ends up turning this woman, this hidden figure, into a model of faith. She's someone to look up to and learn from. She saw something that Jesus' own disciples actually missed. They didn't get it. She saw who Jesus was. She understood the authority he had, and she went after it, both with humility and with boldness. It's a hidden figure. Uh, hidden figures doing heroic things, they're all around us. And, and so for us, that means don't assume that it's just the person who's standing on the biggest stage or the ones who are under the brightest lights who are doing the greatest things. It might be more accurate to say it this way, that it's those who simply see Jesus for who he is and respond appropriately. Those are the ones who are making the biggest impact, no matter what the stage or the setting. And so to put it into proposition, here's what I'd say is when we see what they saw, we'll do what they did. And the question then becomes is, is what do we see when we look at Jesus? That sets the tone for, for the hidden figure we're going to meet in this passage this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 14. And I'm just going to read through the 11 verses here and share the story, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. It says this, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table... A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For the, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So this is the story of a woman who, who Mark isn't, really concerned about sharing her name. That's not the important part. What's important is that she was able to see what everyone else missed. The question for us is, do we see the Jesus she saw? Because if we do, we'll do what she did. And the first thing we see in this passage, just to start at the beginning, is, is we see the time, what time it is. And, and, and by that, I don't mean the, the, the time on a clock on a wall, the, the time, what's coming up. And, and it says first that the Passover is two days away. 
Passover was back then, and it still is today, the most important holiday on the Jewish calendar. It's sort of like the 4th of July for the Jewish people. Um, It's actually coming up this year on April 15th. It, It coincides with Easter. And Passover celebrates when the Lord rescued his people out from slavery in Egypt. But here's the thing. It doesn't just celebrate the fact that he saved them. Passover is about the way that he saved them, that he saved them through a sacrificial substitute. So if you know Exodus, on that last night before they flight from Egypt, each family was told to sacrifice a spotless lamb and then to take the blood of that lamb and wipe it on the side of their doorpost. And then that night, the angel of the Lord came to Egypt. The justice of God fell on the land But every doorpost that had the blood of the lamb was literally passed over. So that's where the word Passover comes from. And every year since then, God's people would gather. They'd go to Jerusalem together and they would celebrate and they'd remember that they were who they were because this innocent lamb died in their place. And each year they'd offer their sacrifices and they'd eat the Passover meal together. And lamb was was the main course at dinner. But this particular Passover was a little bit different for the religious leaders. They weren't so much celebrating. It says that the chief priests and the scribes were scheming instead. They were scheming to shed some blood of their own, and it was Jesus' murder that was on their minds. So Jesus, at this point, holds the top spot on their most wanted list. And so when they looked at Jesus, what they saw was a threat. They saw someone who had to be taken out and eliminated no matter what it took, no matter what the cost. Their intent is to kill him. It's it's no longer a matter of if, it's only a matter of how. The only hitch at this point is, is how do they do it without causing a commotion with all these crowds of people incoming into Jerusalem for the Passover. And you know, some people see Jesus the way they saw him. Maybe, maybe that's you. Is, is Jesus someone who, in your mind, needs to practically be eliminated from your life, no matter what the cost? Maybe, pragmatically, he is someone you just refuse to open up space in your life for. You know, what the religious leaders were right about is that Jesus is a threat, Right? You may have noticed that he steps onto the scene, both in this book and in our lives as well, and he seldom cooperates with our pre-existing plans, with those things that we want to see happen. He enters in as the ultimate authority with his own agenda, and oftentimes he carries out his agenda without even bothering to ask us permission. You know, one of the most Critical questions to to spiritual growth is the simple question is, Jesus, what is it you want to do? What is your agenda? What's your agenda for my life? What's your agenda for this situation, for that decision? There's, There's no greater answer. There's no greater quest than aligning our lives around his plan and his purposes. But the other side to that is if we're set against that, if we have no intention of surrendering to his will, 
then, then we'll, we'll see him as a threat. And if we're like those religious leaders and we're set on advancing our own agenda, then our hearts can effectively be determined to eliminate Jesus, just like theirs. If we see what they saw, we'll find a way to do what they did. So that's the first scene. The next scene is the complete contrast to that, right? And instead of being seen as a threat to be eliminated, Jesus in this next scene is seen as a treasure to be adored. This anonymous woman walks into the house and, and she's carrying with her an alabaster flask in her hands. This, this flask is filled with ointment. It's, it's a perfume um, made of pure nard. And just in case we're not quite sure what that is, if that's some kind of cheap knockoff generic brand, Mark makes the point, says that what she brought in was extremely expensive. And so to put it in perspective, the most expensive perfume on the market today is, uh, best of my knowledge, is a brand known as Clive Christian Number no. 1. So a 1.6-ounce bottle retails for around $865 at Saks. Now, I don't know if they have one of those samplers on the, you know, on the display at Saks, but I think one spray would probably come to $40 or so. Um, but, but be that as it may, understand this, that it's not even, it's not even in the same ballpark of what she was carrying that day. The, the price tag on this, what was inside of this flask, would be equal to an entire year's wages. That's what we're talking about. And add to that the fact that she's carrying it in, in an alabaster box. This is something special. That implies that this would have been like an air, a family heirloom. That means that this would have been like a safety net like an insurance policy to make sure that she would be okay just in case, just in case something unexpected happened. She had the alabaster box filled with nard that she could sell to make sure. It would easily have been the most expensive item that she owned. And and, and she's carrying this box into the house. The house is full, people are watching, and the expectation would have been that she was going to pour out a drop of this precious perfume over Jesus' head. That would have been appropriate. That would have been an honorable gesture to respect someone special like, like this rabbi. But that's not what she does. She doesn't pour out a drop. She breaks the flask wide open. And the entire contents pours out over Jesus' head. The oil runs out on him and and, and the the entire house becomes filled with the aroma. And so you get the idea that this is is an, an offering that is extravagant off the charts. The question then is, who did she see that would compel her to do what she did? When she saw Jesus, she saw a priceless treasure. She saw one who was worth more than anything she could ever possess. She saw the only safety net she ever would need. She saw Jesus clearly, and she's captivated by the incomparable Christ. And there's simply no one and nothing that compares to him. His love 
his care, his compassion, his power, his wisdom, his leading. He is to her more precious than silver, more costly than gold, more beautiful than diamonds, and and nothing that she has can compare with him. Point being is that when we see what she saw, when, when we're captivated by the precious, incomparable Christ, we'll be compelled to do what she did. We take the best of what we have and, and pour it out before him. Not out of coercion, not because someone's twisting our arms. No one's forcing this out of her, right? She's, she's compelled from the inside out to do this. This is, this is a picture of pure, undiluted devotion, adoration. And that's what seeing Jesus clearly leads to. It's, it leads to holding nothing back, to, to turning everything we have into an offering to him. Or like the song says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Question is, is, is that the Jesus you see? Is he your ultimate treasure that, that no matter what you offer to him, you know up front that it's never enough. It's the best you can do, but it doesn't even come close to being enough compared to who he is. See, in this scene, very, very few had the eyes to see what she saw. The house is filled with people, and these were people who, who weren't completely blind to Jesus, right? They, they weren't ready to kill him like the religious leaders, but they also didn't have her eyes, they weren't able to see him clearly. Their, their sight is maybe described as partly cloudy. They're, they're somewhere between blind and clear, and they just don't get it. They can't comprehend. Why would this woman do what she did? Because in their minds, it's just too much. It's over the top. And ultimately, what they see is that her worship is a waste of time. That's where they come down. Their critique is that she could have sold that perfume. She could have used the proceeds to help the poor. And of course, that's true. And there's no doubt that that would be a noble cause. There's there's no question that Jesus prioritizes the poor. They're people that he cares deeply for. That's not the issue. The issue is not that the poor don't matter. It's that they are in the middle of a very unique moment. It's about connecting the right action to the right setting. And, and, and I don't know if it's intentional or not. For those of you who have been with us as we've been working through this book, um, if you remember way back in Mark chapter 2, uh, the people were questioning Jesus. Why do you let your disciples feast when, when the, the Pharisees' disciples and John's disciples are fasting? Why aren't you doing what they do, what they do, what they're doing? And if you remember his answer, he tells them, you don't fast in the middle of a wedding, right? He says that when the bridegroom is in the room, it's just not the time to fast. There is a time for it, but it's not now because weddings are special times that are set apart. And here in chapter 14, there's another special time that's set apart. It's the funeral time. 
So what you never see is someone complaining in the middle of a wake, look at all these special arrangements that they, all this money could have been spent and gone to charity, right? It's, there's a recognition that it's just not the time. And that's what they're missing. They were in the middle of an unprecedented moment, a moment so special, so exceptional that it even supersedes the default cares, that default drive to have compassion. And, and this hidden figure, this, this woman, is, she's the only one who sees it. But you see, what she did makes perfect sense when you comprehend who the offering was being offered to and what it is that he's about to do. You see, ultimately, their problem with their pushback, it's not that they're cheap. It's not that they're cranky. It's not that they're critical. The problem is that they're, they're blind. They can't see. They can't comprehend who Jesus is. And, and maybe that's the way you see him as well. You're, you're, you're not ready to kill him, but you're also not ready to crown him either right? But, but this whole worship thing, that just doesn't, doesn't make sense to you. All this extravagant adoration that, that Christ followers direct towards Jesus, you just don't get it. And you can concede, sure, he was a good guy. He, he taught some good things. He helped a lot of people. But, but can't we get over Jesus already? Right? Can't we just go do some good in the world and, and do some charity work and just leave it at that? The, the answer is no. That will never do. And, and the way Jesus opens the blinded eyes, which he does in this passage, is by pointing them to his death. You see, cloudy turns to clear when we comprehend the cross. And so he tells them, leave her alone because she's anointed my body in advance for burial. That, that statement, that ties the whole passage together. This, what's been said about the Passover. That yes, it's two days away, but it's more than just the celebration of something that happened in the past. It was also a foreshadowing of an ultimate rescue that was about to take place. And it points to Jesus as the Passover lamb. He came to lay down his life and be the ultimate sacrifice. And when you realize what you did, you cannot help but conclude that he gave everything. He gave it all up. He left his home in heaven where he was heaven's treasure, the object of adoration. He gave up the glory. He gave up the privilege. He gave up the power. He had it all and he let it all go. He set it aside. He entered into this broken down world to die. That was his objective from day one, to die, to give his all for you and for me. And for her, he laid down his life in our place to be the ultimate sacrifice, to shed his blood for us, for the sake of all people, to set us free from the bondage of sin and of death. And that's all about to go down. And none of this was a secret. Jesus had been very upfront about this 
all the time. He had already told the disciples three times, I'm going to Jerusalem, and when I get there, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be condemned, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be killed, and after three days, I'm going to rise. None of them got it. They all missed it. They're just like us, right? We, we hear what we want to hear, and we filter out what doesn't fit with our pre-existing expectations. Their expectation was still set on, on a military messiah, the one who would march up to the throne and conquer and reign. And they still couldn't comprehend that this messiah was heading to a cross to die. They couldn't, but she did. One hidden figure is the exception. Her name doesn't matter, but she listened. She got it. She saw who Jesus is. She fathomed the immensity of that moment and the sacrifice he was about to make. And it's because she saw who she saw that she did what she did. And once we see what she saw, we'll do what she did as well. What she did is lavish. What she did is extravagant. But it's also completely appropriate. Because here's the thing. She gave the same way Jesus gave. And that's the whole point. In effect, she's doing the same thing that widow in the synagogue and the temple was doing. The the widow gave everything. This woman gives everything. And that's like Jesus who gave everything. That's what this is about. They're simply giving their all to him because they see, they understand, they comprehend that Jesus is there giving his all for them. So do you see it? When, when we see what she saw, we'll, we'll be compelled to do what she did. Not just to slice out and carve out measured, measured increments and just offer that to him. We'll be compelled to give our all Because love that is so amazing and so divine demands my life, my heart, my all. It's just the way it works. And and we each have the opportunity to, to live that out, to make our lives into living sacrifices on whatever stage, be it big or small that we find ourselves in. It doesn't matter how big. It doesn't matter how obscure it may be. It doesn't matter how people respond or whether they get it or not. Jesus gets it. And I love that he tells them, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. And we have that opportunity to live our lives in such a way that we do beautiful things on behalf of our Savior who has done the most beautiful thing for us.